So I always ask the question to Bernie Sanders supporters, do you trust the government? And almost always they say, no, no, the government's bought by lobbyists and corporations and by the war machine. I say, why on earth would you want to make that government bigger? It goes without saying conservatism and more importantly, conservatives have had few places to turn on college campus. So where does that leave young conservative students? In 2012, a determined 18 year old kid named Charlie Kirk took it upon himself to answer that question. His answer? Turning Point USA, an organization whose mission is to educate, train, and organize students through their campus chapters and yearly events. Over the past eight years, Charlie has grown TPUSA's reach to over 1,500 campuses throughout the nation. In 2016, Charlie joined then-candidate Donald Trump's campaign, and he's been a steadfast supporter of the president ever since. His newest book is The MAGA Doctrine, the only ideas that will win the future. In our conversation, Charlie and I dive headfirst into whether President Trump has been good for the conservative movement what it will take for Republicans to hold the White House, as well as why the same Democratic candidate he hopes will face President Trump in 2020 is also the one that terrifies him most. Welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special. Charlie Kirk is joining us today. Now, just a reminder, we'll be doing some bonus questions with Charlie. The only way to get access to that part of the conversation is to become a member. Head on over to dailywire.com, become a member. You'll have access to all of the full conversations with every one of our awesome guests. Charlie, thanks so much for joining thanks, us. Ben, so I just want to make you. it clear from the very outset that it, it appears that Charlie and I are on equal eye level. There is an apple box just, for President <laughs> Trump. There's there's an apple box, there's a ladder, and I'm on stilts. That's the only That's way very that we funny. were able to actually yes, make this Yes, but we happen. see eye to eye here. So. Yeah, n- n- well, now we're on the same we'll level. We'll see if we see eye to eye throughout the whole conversation. I think we might. But we'll see. Okay, so why don't we start with your background for people sure. who only know you from the memes. And yes. this will be memeable. Like Just making clear, you're free to use this however you want in terms of memes, people. Okay, now we've opened the gate. <laughs> so, Charlie, I met you when you were but an even younger whippersnapper. You're only 26 now, but I think I met you when you were maybe 18 years That's old right. at like a Horowitz Freedom Retweet Retreat. And you were just starting Turning Point USA. So at 18 years old, you, you didn't go to college. So how, right. how, did you, how did you decide, number one, not going to college, number two, going to do student activism, and number three, going to start one of the largest student organizations in the country? Well, well th- thank you, Ben. It's an honor to be here. I, I appreciate it a lot, very much. Uh, started it. I had no money, no connections, no idea what I was doing. Uh, always had a passion for politics and for saving the country. Um, and I, was, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I originally wanted to go to West Point, didn't get in ended up being the best thing that never happened to me. I convinced my parents to allow me to take a gap year before entering college, and one gap year has now turned into eight gap years. And the great irony of the whole thing is I run an organization that's focused on college campus outreach that actually go into college myself. Uh, but it's now you know on 2,000 high school and college campuses. You spoke at our last event, uh, which was down in Palm Beach at the end of last year. And, and look, you know this, you visit a lot of campuses across the country. Uh, it's, it, there's a crisis happening right now in higher education where students are being taught to hate our country, where anti-Americanism is on the rise. And I think conservative values and conservative ideas are being given an opportunity to really have a revival and a renaissance. And, you know, we see that at Turning Point USA. We see that uh, the work that we're doing and the speeches that I give and the visits that, you know, I, I partake in. And it's been a great journey over the last eight years. And it's been fun seeing, of course, you. When I first met you, you were, you know, working and writing and doing radio. And then, of course, that was before the Daily Wire and uh, seeing that kind of take off. So it's been fun kind of, you know, throughout the last couple of years, you know, kind of seeing both, uh, both entities grow. So what is your relationship like with President Trump on both the personal and a business? Like that's what that's what people kind of want to know. Sure. Because uh, the, the picture of you in public, because I knew you before Trump was Trump. I mean, he was Trump, but he just wasn't in the political mix nearly as much as obviously he is now. 
I knew you as conservative college campus guy. Most yes. people now know you as kind of Trump guy online who does Trumpy things. So how did what is your relationship with yeah. President Trump? And, and that, that's fair. I wouldn't say that's the extent of everything I do, but that's definitely how, you know, people will stop and say, hey, you know, the president, don't you? Like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, look, he's he's been extraordinary to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm very candid and kind of upfront with it. He's been very good to me personally. His family's been really good to me. I met Don Jr. in the summer of 2016 after I spoke at the Republican National Convention. Um, I felt, you know, our country was going to go in a horrible direction if Hillary Clinton got elected president. Uh, originally, I was a Ted Cruz supporter and then, you know, then endorsed Trump as, you know, he was the nominee because that was what a lot of people did, including Mike Pence, who was a Cruz, then Trump guy. Um, and I went, I went up to Donald Trump Jr. and I said, look, we need to do something with students and youth infrastructure. I have a couple years of exp experience under my belt. I would love to travel with you across the country and maybe organize some student events. And he was his willingness to do that was unusual in politics. Usually you have to go through a hierarchy. And there really wasn't much of a hierarchy in the Trump campaign uh, in those days back in July and August of 16. Um, obviously, a surprising election happened and kind of it was stunning for a lot of different people. And, you know, the president, um, you know, I, I, I developed a pretty good relationship with him. Uh, and he's been He's been extraordinary in a lot of different ways. He's delivered results for our country, the likes of which I wouldn't have even predicted, uh, you know, for the conservative agenda and for, you know, the, the American revitalization agenda. And, you know, spending time with him has, has been a real thrill for someone that, you know, never went to college and just started this organization on a whim to be able to, you know, meet with the president of the United States and be able to, um, you know, inform of the, of the things we're doing on college campuses has been, you know, really exciting and an, an immense blessing in many different ways. So how do you bridge the gap between sort of what you do on college campuses and your activity with President Trump? What I mean by that is that by looking at polls, President Trump is wildly unpopular with young people, right? This is the one area where he is probably most unpopular just in terms of the polling data. Now, conservatism is never supremely popular with, with young people, particularly people on campus. Mm -hmm. But President Trump seems to have raised a particular level of ire with people 18 to 21. At the same time, you're running this major campus organization. He has people who love him on campus, no question. Yes. I mean, there, there are people who just adore him on and campus. And they wear the MAGA hats to bed. Right. Like it, it, and when, uh, when they shower into class, no matter what, the, uh, there's a fervent base for him. A hundred percent. So so what do you think the mission of TPUSA is and how does that combine with sort of what President Trump does and where it puts you guys in the position of maximizing the conservative movement when on the one hand, it gets yeah. your supporters super passionate. On the other hand, Trump is such an alienating name for people who are young on campus. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And look, so there, there's positive and negatives in, in any you know presidency when it comes to college campus outreach. And the positives has been it's opened huge amount of enthusiasm and interest on college campuses where we have thousands of students attending our events, um, lots of opposition that comes and, you know, that, that, that makes the events far more, you know, exciting and, you know, with a lot more energy than it otherwise would have been. Um, I, I have a, I have a seven, eight year window. I can say from the moment that President Trump got elected, college campus activism from Turning Point USA side doubled, tripled, quadrupled almost overnight. And it emboldened college conservatives to stand for conservative principles, even more so pre-Trump. And now, mind you, I've been doing this for a couple decades, so my reference point is only about eight years. But I could tell you that the Mitt Romney Republican Party, we would not have kids that were doing what they are today, where they're starting students for Trump groups at UC Berkeley or University of California, Irvine. I think that's one of the positives of the Trump presidency uh, is that conservatives are less afraid than ever before to say what they believe and to stand with conviction. And, you know, the president has definitely, I think, taught us that you can punch back twice as hard to use a Barack Obama expression that, you know, you use quite often. And I think that's one of the great positives of the Trump presidency and him as an individual is that 
you have to recognize that the left is a destructive force in our country. And I think Newt Gingrich says it best. If President Trump's ideology can be best summed up, he's an anti-leftist presidency. Right. And I agree with that. And I think that the, if you recognize the left in media, culture, Hollywood, and academia as a corrosive force to our culture and our country, and you make them the enemy and we're going to put them as, in opposition, I think they're that's been very, very helpful to us as an organization fighting on the ground in college campuses. So what do you do with the folks who are in the middle and convincible? So as I say, Trump is phenomenal at firing up the base. I mean, you see it at his rallies. You see it, yes. in, you see it online. I mean, the, the, his base is fired up. And this is because, as you say, Trump is uniquely aggressive. He is, as I said during the campaign in 2016, a hammer in search of a nail. It's extraordinarily satisfying when he hits a, a nail. It is not as satisfying when he hits a kitten. But with that said, when, when it comes to you know, what's happening on, on college campuses, how do you reach out and have you had any success reaching out to people who are wavering or is it more along the lines of emboldening people who are quiet before yeah, to come forward? Th- there's a lot of that. And I'd love to get you know, your feedback because you go to these campuses too and you get a lot of you know, different questions and, uh, from, from people. And there are people that come to the front of the line and ask questions and they'll say, Charlie, I like what you say. I like the ideas. Just I'm not there yet on Trump. And my perspective on that is, look, I believe what I believe. You know, I'm, I'm going to defend the president and his agenda and what he's done for our country. And more times than not, students will say, OK, I might not agree with all that, but I appreciate the fervency that you support him with and you explain it better than most people would. And, and that's, that's the position that we take. And I think the movable middle, if you will, has become more winnable than ever before because of the Marxist insurgency in the Democrat Party. And I think that it's presenting a huge opportunity for people like you and people like me to make convincing arguments for conservative ideas. Now, I will say, though, that the traditional conservative outreach on college campuses, let's say the last 40 or 50 years, where it's just talking about corporate tax cuts and just talking about the same sort of macroeconomic issues, it, it, wasn't, always, it wasn't always doing the job on campuses. What Trump has liberated, though, is more cultural issues as well, where he's saying, you know, maybe English should be the official language of the United States. We're going to talk about immigration. We're going to talk about culture. And there are a lot of young people that are deeply passionate about these issues just outside of, you know, the discussions about GDP growth, which I care about a lot. I mean, of course, I want a robust free market economy. But I think the Trump presidency and Trump in general, him weighing into different cultural issues, I think, has also opened the door for us to win over a lot of young people that otherwise might not be registered and not have been voting at all in the first place. Because you spend so much time you know, kind of defending Trump, do you ever feel the necessity on campus to separate yourself off from things that, that he does wrong? Because obviously he's a human being like any, anybody else. He's got his foibles. Some may say more than, than others, at least in public life. So when, when you're on campus, you know, and, and somebody asks you a question about something that Trump has done that, you know, of which you don't approve. Do you ever feel the necessity to defend it? Or, well, or? look, I don't agree with everything he's done. No person would. Um, no person would agree with everything anyone ever does, right? But I don't go out of my way to criticize him. And I'm very, I'm very upfront about that. And I, I don't consider that to be my role. And I don't consider that to be helpful at all to the threat that we're facing up against dominant Marxism and leftism in our country and our culture. And you and I might disagree on this, um, where... I think my particular role right now is that there are not enough people doing a full-throated defense of the Trump presidency administration, especially on college campuses, where it is so unusual for someone to come and say, no, President Trump might be one of the most successful presidents in modern American history. And and students will say they're so puzzled and flummoxed if somebody says that. And then I'll, I'll start to recite some some facts and some statistics that they might not have heard. And economic success, lowest ever black unemployment, Hispanic unemployment, Asian unemployment, energy independent, th- things that you know you and I know just off, off the cuff that students might not hear. Um, but look, I don't agree with everything that he's done from a policy perspective or position. I agree with almost all of it, though, because a lot of it, and you've talked about this, is traditional conservative stuff. is stuff that we've talked about 
you know, in the conservative circles uh, for the last couple decades. Things that people have promised and never delivered upon, like energy independence, like moving the embassy to Jerusalem, like deregulating the economy, like cutting taxes. These sorts of things are traditional conservative free market ideas that have been, you know, tossed around for quite some time. But I make the argument in the book as well, why did it take Trump to actually do this? Like, why didn't George W. Bush ever speak at the March for Life? Why didn't George W. Bush ever move the embassy to Jerusalem? Why didn't George W. Bush recognize the Golan Heights? Why was it Trump, the billionaire businessman from New York, who's a recent, you know, conservative, who at one point in his life held a pro-choice position, why would he go and defund Planned Parenthood funding? And I make the argument, it's because this is the populism at its best. It's because the conservative movement and the America, the, the people in America that supported him hold these positions, and he promised to fulfill what he said he was going to run on. And actually f- doing that as a president, I think, is so, is so, in my opinion, unusual and something that deserves praise. I mean, there, there's no question that, that his willingness to violate long-held conventional wisdom, it definitely has its upsides. I mean, people tend to focus a lot on the downsides, you know, the Twitter account and the, and the insults and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is that in policy terms, very often he will, he will stumble upon a conventional wisdom and he'll say, this makes no sense. And he'll just completely overturn it. And it turns out the conventional wisdom was absolutely yes. wrong. And that, that definitely is one of the strengths of his presidency when he has done that. Yeah, and look, I'll, I'll give like three examples. China is one of them. Um, you know, from a, from a pure theoretical position, I'm not a fan of tariffs. If we just talk about macroeconomics, tariffs are taxes. However, from a national security position, I'm a huge fan of tariffs on China because I think China's our, our greatest enemy geopolitically and otherwise. And you look at what China's done building islands in the South China Sea, hacking our cyber grid, basically sending spies from the CCP on Confucius Institute college campuses. President Trump basically threw up the entire chessboard on China and said, no, this entire way we've been view- viewing China has been incorrect. Immigration is another example, too. Republican and Democrat presidents, both alike, from H.W. Bush on, have just kind of had this agreement to not really solidify the southern border and just to allow unlimited amounts of green cards to be issued. He had an unorthodox position on that. And also culture as well. Republican presidents have passed. They did not challenge the media like President Trump has. And I think that's been a very positive of his presidency because the media right now is as worse as I've, ever, as I've ever seen it. I mean, they're an activist network for the Democrat Party. They really are. And they go out of their way to misrepresent positions and to attack conservative values. So one, one of the things that I've objected to uh, is the conflation of anti-leftism with conservatism. And, and I think that you're rightly distinguishing the two, but I think that we should be even clearer about the distinction. So sure. it, it's true that President Trump is, I agree, the most anti-left president of the modern American era. Uh, there, there's, I mean, this is what he campaigned on. I mean, it, there's a reason that Rush Limbaugh in the middle of the 2016 campaign rechristened the advanced, the, the Institute for Advanced Conservative Studies to the Institute for Advanced Anti-Leftist Studies really sort of as an homage to, to, to President Trump. That comes along with some, some rewards and it comes along with some risks. The, the reward is that it makes very clear who the opposition is, which is something that Republicans, conservatives traditionally have not done. I'm all for it. I think yeah, the clarification I agree is necessary. Uh, the, the risk is that anti-left is broader than conservative. And suddenly you may be associating with people who oppose the left, but who also are not only not conservative, but oppose a lot of the ideals of conservatism. Or you may be willing to overlook in the, in the simple binary battle, you may be overwilling to overlook activity that, you, that, are, that is not conservative in the name of anti-leftism. So this is where you get into President Trump's heresies, bad things that he has said in the past, bad things that he has that he has done. The, the fact that nobody in the Republican Party seems to give a damn about spending anymore. I'm old enough to remember when we all cared about spending. But this, and, you and, and I agree completely on this. Yeah, and, and now obviously we are blowing out the spending to an extraordinary extent. And so, and if you criticize that, then you are accused of being an aide to the left because you are opposing a principle that is 
a principle of the left, but because Trump is anti-left, mm -hmm. then it's the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing. So where do you draw the line between forwarding conservatism and forwarding anti-leftism? It's a great you? question. I, I try to answer that question in the book where I say, what is the doctrine of the Trump presidency? You know, the Monroe had the doc doctrine, Monroe doctrine. I call it the MAGA doctrine, which the argument I make is that it's a blend of conservatism, populism, common sense, and a pro-American approach. And I look back to the Reagan era, and we had eight years of awesome conservative wins under Ronald Reagan. And H.W. Bush undid a lot of those. H.W. Bush grew the size of government. He put back bureaucrats that Ronald Reagan fired. And all of a sudden, we kind of saw a descent away from Ronald Reagan conservatism. And we have to remember, Reagan was a populist, too. I mean, Reagan was both a conservative and a populist. And I, I think there's dangers to populism and its furthest extent. But I don't think that we as conservatives should be afraid of it. I, I think that there's a lot of positives when it comes to listening to the people and actually bringing dignity back to forgotten America. And so what is the doctrine of the Trump presidency? I make the argument that it's analyzing every decision and every deeply held belief in Washington, D.C. by the ruling class, so the wise men of Washington, and asking the question objectively, has this been serving our country well? And then if no, what is the proper approach to it? And by using that kind of common sense approach, he's actually come organically to conservative positions that other people that ran on conservative positions would not have organically come to, such as standing for life. We've, we've been to the list, canceling the Iran deal, getting out of the, getting out of TPP, getting out of the Paris Climate Accord. These are things that traditional conservatives might not have actually had the backbone to do that. And it's a question I get a lot, like, what is the, what is the actual belief system? What is the philosophy? Well, what he's trying to do is really hard, which is to try to recover and renew a country that was almost in managed decline by a bipartisan big government consensus and a globalist consensus under kind of the Bush, Clinton, Obama years, which was, all right, you know, George W. Bush would be more, we'll get corporate tax cuts, we'll kind of keep the borders open, and we're going to be more hawkish on foreign policy. Obama, exact opposite, we're going to send billions of dollars to the evil Iranians, still keep the borders open, but we're going to have anemic economic growth. I make the argument, the, the doctrine that he espouses and that he believes in is when we can learn from and we should advance for the next you know, couple decades and hopefully next century, which is, are we actually seeing that, are we actually seeing results for the people that he ran to represent? And it seems as if we had a ruling class party sent you know, post-Reagan, and Donald Trump, I believe, has positively disrupted that. One of the questions that I have about ideas like the MAGA doctrine is, are we trying to in flesh, a skeleton that can be in flesh in a number of different ways. Meaning, we're, we're trying to. We're, we're, yeah, President Trump has, as I, I've said this before, so this is no great secret. I think that he has excellent political instincts. I think that he also has spasms of thought. I don't think that he has a comprehensive worldview in any serious way. I mean, this is not somebody who sits around. He is a businessman. He doesn't sit around reading Milton Friedman. He's openly bragged about having re read, uh, written more books than he has read. And, and so, trying to sort of graft a broad ideological agenda onto that, as opposed to. I think common sense is, is a fairly good description of how he sees his own agenda, but trying to graft on an ideology. I mean, Tucker's tried, Tucker Carlson has tried to graft on one particular ideology. Uh, you've seen, I think, Jared Kushner try to graft on a different ideology. I think you've seen Pence try to graft on a different ideology. And it seems like there's this constant exercise going on in which there is sort of a skeleton of feelings and instincts mm -hmm. that is good. And then everybody tries to Put a, tries to put flesh on it, and sometimes it looks like a lion, and sometimes it looks like a chicken, and, and it's not super clear so, so what yeah, exactly it is. I, I see where you're coming from. I'll disagree slightly. I think his doctrine, first and foremost, is from the first time he announced for the presidency, he said, through in, instinctual observance of where the country was going, is we're not winning anymore, and there's something deeply wrong with who's been running our country and how they've been running our country. And his agenda, or his doctrine, and those people you mentioned have all placed more 
I would say, political philosophy behind it. But let's take a step before that is, how are we going to renew and revitalize the country? How are we going to bring this back to a place of excellence? And it goes back to a, a, a phrase that you and I believe, and the left does not believe. Bernie Sanders does not believe this. Nancy Pelosi does not believe this, that we're the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. It's the idea of American exceptionalism. I know he believes that. Yeah, that for sure. And he, that's why I picked that, that picture. He's <laughs> hugging the flag, right? And, and that's his agenda. It's like, I care about this like I care about my son or I care about a beloved. And, and sometimes he's going to, you know, engage in braggadocia or he's going to, you know, do things that are off the wall and atypical. Um, and we've, there's been unlimited coverage of all that. However, he goes back to a default position of, I've been elected by forgotten America, because a lot of people showed up for the first time in a long time. People switch parties and people, and I, I think there's something to that, to bring dignity to those parts of the country that have been disenfranchised by the ruling class because our country was taken advantage of for so long. And it, it, it's, a, it's a blend of nationalism, populism, conservatism, and that word, those two words, common sense, I think, make, I think that frames it up really well. And it's also, it's challenging the ruling class consensus. And I think there's, some, I think there's, a, lot of, I think there's a lot of truth to that, which is, have these people been right about what they've been feeding us the last 30 or 40 years? Maybe about certain things and about other things, maybe not. And I, especially when it comes to these, these positions such as, Oh wow, we should never challenge China. Like really, that's that's. It seems like both parties have just been kind of okay with allowing the rise to China, with a couple senators here and there that have been speaking out. President Trump has opened and has given oxygen now to a an American um, America first agenda towards China that I think will benefit you know our generate for generations to come. So to answer your question, I think the doctrine, if you will, is that. I love my country so much. I believe it's a gift that's been given to us. I'm going to do whatever it takes to try to save it and revitalize it. I can't say that about Bernie Sanders. His agenda is this place is a mistake. It's a racist country. It's bigoted. It's backwards. And I want to revolutionize it and turn it into some sort of Marxist Western European failed nanny state. So in a second, I want to ask you about one of the biggest questions I often get on college campuses. I'm sure you get it a lot too, which is how much of this is just Trump doing stuff and how much of it is 4D chess? We'll get to that in just one second. But first, let's talk about a sad reality. You're bad at predicting the future. Not just you, like all the humans. Because if people were great at predicting the future, you'd just go to Vegas and you'd be rich and then you wouldn't need life insurance. But here's the thing, you do need life insurance. Unpredictability keeps life interesting and makes it nerve wracking. One way to worry less about the future is to get the right life insurance policy. This is where policy genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers and find your best price. You can save 1500 bucks or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and the red tape for free. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home, auto insurance, disability insurance. They can help you do the bundling, the whole deal. So... If you haven't found a play-by-play -play breakdown of your future inside a crystal ball or a fortune cookie, that's okay. Be prepared for anything with life insurance. In just a few minutes, you can find your best price and apply over at policygenius.com. Also, just be a responsible human being. God forbid something should happen to you. your family will be without your income. You don't need that. What you do need is life insurance. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong. Better to get life insurance right. Okay, so let's talk about how President Trump is perceived. Mm -hmm. So, I think one of the critiques that, that some people make of you particularly sure. is that is that maybe you're giving the president too much credit on on his sort of how much of this is planned. So I, for example, love a lot of the policies that you just talked about. I also happen to think that politics is much more veep than House of Cards, and I think that everyone is basically a moron. Uh, and so, and so <laughs> okay. when, when, when the president says things that appear to me to be not brilliant, I will say that appears to be to be not brilliant. That, that I, I think that's kind of dumb. Uh, you've been criticized for sort of the 40 chess model of thinking of President Trump 
that, that President Trump is thinking three steps ahead, that when he says a thing about Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the national anthem, he's not doing that because it's just a gut instinct that he's tweeting mm-hmm. out, but because he's actually thought through the ramifications of whatever it is he said. Now, is, that may not be a fair characterization of you, but how do you think about that? I, I, I don't necessarily think it's a fair characterization, but it's fair to say I get that accusation. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let, let's, <laughs> let's say that. I will say from, from my time, sp- spending time around him and seeing him be able to predict things correctly, for example, he said, I'm being spied on. People laughed at it. Remember, he said that tweet out during transition. Actually, it turned out that there was a lot of nonsense in the whole FISA process that he was being spied on. I think his instincts are terrific. And one of the things I talk about in the book and otherwise is that he does have 40 years of built up experience in a wide variety of different endeavors from pop culture to television to building buildings to the woman rink that does make him a very unique individual to be able to be to address this multitude of problems and these issues. And so I asked myself the question, so is it and people should ask themselves the question, too, like, is it instinct Or is it just kind of flying blind? Is he just, you know, hitting things in the dark? I believe it's instinct because if it was just flying blind in the dark, why was it that other Republican presidents that we've seen the last 30 years were able to do what he's been able to do and have the courage and the conviction to be able to do this? I'll give you some some examples of this. Why did it take President Trump to renegotiate NAFTA, the USMCA, which is great for our country, bipartisan consensus, big credit to Jared Kushner and his team that worked really hard on it. Why did it take President Trump to be able to get you know, to get the VA Accountability Act done or get right to try. And I make the argument that he's not afraid to push boundaries of kind of the bureaucratic consensus in D.C. where they'll they'll give him no for an answer. And a traditional politician that was born and bred in politics in the U.S. Senate will probably take that more seriously. And he's 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 unafraid because of his experience and because of where he's been and how and who he is to say, what, what, are, you, what are you saying? No, what do you mean by that? And he, he's not afraid to push those boundaries. I think that's a healthy thing for our country. And one of the things that frustrates me the most about critics of President Trump, and, and you in no way you know, embody this at all, but people on the left do this. They think everything he does comes from a sinister Machiavellian perspective. Right. Now, I mean, I've said this directly to Bill Maher. Bill Maher was saying this to me, and I was like, well, which is it? Is he an idiot, is he an idiot no, or is he an evil genius? You're going to have to pick you, one. You stood up for it <laughs> wonderfully. Now I have to give you credit for that because it's nonsense. It's like, Wait, so he gets some sort of weird pleasure for kids being locked up in cages, even though that was under Barack Obama, right? It's like, it's either, it, you have to, you have to, it, you can't just alternate. It's either that he's playing 4D chess and he's, you know, a Bond villain, <laughs> or he's just has no idea what he's doing because you can't, you can't be one one day and one the other. I come from the perspective that his motives are pure and his motives are good, that he does deeply care about this country. He really does. And he gets, when he gets the most upset, he gets the most angry is when our country gets taken advantage of. When he sees, bad deals being brokered, or he sees us going in a direction that will make us less competitive for future generations to come. And I talk about quite often, you look at the rallies, these rallies that we've seen him do, they're an act of, they're a political phenomenon. We've never seen presidents a year and a half from election be able to draw 35,000, 40,000 people. When you go to these rallies, and I encourage people to do it, there's something really unusual that happens that very few people are on their phones texting. They're locked into him. And it, it kind of struck me after the fourth or fifth or sixth rally I went to, I said, they look at him as their vessel back to representative government. And it might, it might not be as, you know, as let's just say, as pure and simple as that, but I think it works because th- there's a lot of people, millions, tens of millions of people in this country that have felt disenfranchised by just the traditional political class. And they see in him, in the most unusual way, you couldn't have predicted it or wrote it, a brash billionaire from New York City that has given more voice to the working class in this country than, you know, than I would say just a traditional U.S. senator from some of these Midwestern states and some of the states that I think have, quite honestly, at the expense of the ruling class agenda, 
uh, have seen their lives not, not necessarily progress in a way that they saw fit. So going into the 2020 cycle, I've seen a couple of different sort of defenses and possible defenses of the Trump presidency pushed forward in terms of advertising. There's one that I think is less successful and one that I think is more successful. And I'd like to get your take on them. Yeah. So one that I think is less successful is the tack. The president is a magnificent patriot who knows exactly what he is doing. He is fully in control of everything and everything is swell because of all those things. The other one is the ad that his campaign cut, which I think is an excellent ad where he said, you may not like him. You may not like his foibles. You may not like all the things he tweets, but do you like your wallet? Like, That's how's right. that going for you? And I think that that is a more successful approach to Trump. So I wonder how you feel about that, because do you, do you think that it's it's off-putting to people, the overt defense of somebody who, I mean, people make their own de decisions about Trump. It's not like when you say, Trump's a wonderful guy, I know him personally, we get along great, we go fishing together, that people all of a sudden, we don't go fishing, <laughs> I, I can't see President Trump fishing, to be honest with you. But it, but w with that said, yeah, I wonder, you know, when, when you make the character defense yes. of Trump, that seems like a much harder defense of Trump because people have their own kind no, of... No, it, it might be. I, I make it because it's true. It I, just, I make it because it's true. I don't make it because it might be easier or harder. I will say, though, the easier argument to make is to say, Qasem Soleimani would be alive if a Democrat right, exactly. was president of the United States. This is right. Like that, I mean, you, you like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh because they wouldn't be on the Supreme Court if you had a Democrat or even a different type of Republican. And I think the ad that the campaign cut, to your excellent point, he might be the tough guy, but he's the tough guy we need. Right. He's rough around, basically the ad, and I'm not putting words in their mouth, it was, he might be rough around the edges, but we need that fighter. And I think making the street brawler argument can resonate with a lot of people because what you're doing, it's an old salesman trick, right? You take the criticism off the table immediately, right? So people might, they look at the ad, they're like, oh yeah, I kind of agree with that because that is a deep, that's a belief that people have where they're like, I like what he does. I might not like his style. And you hear it a lot and I hear it a lot. And, but if you take that off from branding his presidency or branding his, his message and you say, wait a second, you look at what he's done, maybe there's, maybe all those things that you consider a negative, the, the brawler, the street fighter, maybe our country's needed a street fighter for some time. I think that is a, an, effective, a, an effective way to brand it, but also saying the left has gone so off the rails, especially when it comes to just things that should stop at the water's edge. I mean, the Soleimani thing really bothers me because this guy's a maniac and he deserved to die. He was a terrorist. And if Pete Buttigieg is the nominee, low likelihood that happens, right? He basically said, yeah, Soleimani would still be alive. That, I mean, for, for a, a family in Florida that's wondering who to vote for, that's a pretty stark contrast that like Kasim Soleimani would be alive or not alive. A guy that killed, you, you would know better than I, 500, 600 Americans, you know, in the Iraq war. And so I think, I think that kind of binary choice does a, does a lot. And I think the president is going to be really hard to run up against because I think he gets more popular, the more binary the race becomes. Because politics is a binary choice. It's not a referendum ideas. It's not, do you want this water reclamation district or not, right? It's, it's. Do you want Bernie Sanders or do you want President Trump? Or do you want Bloomberg or do you want President Trump? And I think as some of those matchups, all of a sudden President Trump becomes a lot more appealing to a lot more people. So this may be a moot point because President Trump has not been supremely malleable to criticisms of his excesses. But there are kind of two perspectives about, about dealing with, with President Trump that we've seen inside the administration and outside. One is the let Trump be Trump view. Like just let him free. Unchain the man. Let him, let him run through the, the China store. He's a bull in the China shop, but we need the bull. Uh, and then there is the, the perspective... Well, let's critique him where it's possible. Let's try to convince him. Let's try to talk him down. Uh, obviously, look, I've been of the, the second view. This has been perfectly obvious. I think that, that he has been hemmed in by his advisors on a, on a wide variety of occasions in which it's been quite good for him to listen to his advisors. Where, where do you come down on the... Uh, Twitter is a good example. Like, I'm of the view, and I think a lot of people 
in and out of the administration or of The View, it would be wonderful to have one person read his tweets before he hits send. Just like one guy, it doesn't matter, just like the secretary down the hall, just the, the janitor, like somebody read the tweets before he hits send. And then there are people who say, no, no, that would inhibit him, that would, that would stop him. We've seen this break into the open re- re- relatively recently with regard to Attorney General Barr, who's like, can you just stop tweeting about the cases I'm handling here? You're undercutting me. And Trump's like, yeah. well, I know I'm undercutting you, but whatever, man. Like, I got, man's got to be what a man's got to be, YOLO. So where do you come down? So look, I'm going to make an argument that will be a little kind of atypical. So, which is, there are people in this country, when you go to these MAGA rallies, you go to Iowa, you go to Ohio, they love the tweets. They do. For sure. And there is a population out there. And I don't interface with them every single day. I interface with them, you know, more than most. And they, they love it. And there is a point to this, though. And a common criticism I get, and part of the rise of Bernie Sanders is the authenticity argument. Oh, yeah, that Marxism stuff, I'm not really a fan of it. You know, like the fact that our country is going to burn. But he really seems like he knows what he, he, he is who he is. I would make the argument that if President Trump became too political, became too D.C. and became too vanilla, he would lose a lot of his, va- his base. Maybe that's overestimated. Maybe I'm overcompensating it. Maybe I'm overhandicapping it. But there are people that are pleased that he's the same person that he was on the escalator that he is he today. He's turned down from like an, a spinal tap 11 down to like a 2. But like, 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 like an 11 to an 8.5. And and, and look, none of us will know the balance of how much you get and how much you lose. I will say this, though, that he does command the news cycle better than any other president we've ever seen. (laughs) And and there there have been high level quality social media tweets and trolling of the left, the likes of which is going to be legendary in the halls of Internet culture. Seriously, though. And if he's going up against the left with that kind of fervency and sometimes say, oh, maybe you shouldn't have tweeted this. I say, no, no, no. He recognizes the threat to this country. That goes back to the anti-leftist thing, right? And Dennis Prager makes this argument quite often, which is, if you re- and, and you recognize it, of course, they will not be stopped unless they come up against someone willing to punch them back twice as hard. And I think President Trump is that man for the moment. And, you know, I get a common criticism from people. They say, well, Charlie, you're a Christian. How could you support this, right? How could you do this? I say, and, and you, you, you might appreciate this. Well, then we got to take Samson out of the Hall of Faith. I mean, Samson was a, a man who, in a prostitute's bed, God came to him and revealed to say, basically, you got, I need you to go fight the Philistines. And with the jaw of a donkey, he you know, killed a thousand Philistines. I can't teach that in Sunday school, right? That's pretty brutal. I, I would make the argument that, that Trump, for lack of a better term, was called for a moment like this to be that brutal street fighter that we really needed. And if, 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 it's, if it's indelicate and if it's not you know, right down the fairway, so be it. Because there's an enemy, there's an opposition to a blessing that God gave us that is this country that is in need of that kind of street fighter. I mean, I, I, my, my only critique of that would be it would still be better if Samson had not been stripping the prostitute at the time. No, I'm not, I'm not defending been... it. I'm not. I, I, trust me. But st- you, you, you can't dismiss the argument. I mean, in Hebrews 14.4, he's in the hall of faith, right? The quote unquote hall of faith. Yeah, yeah. Right? And he had his own moral indiscretions. We all do. Right? There's different extremes. There's different variations. Go great with Delilah. I mean, let's. I'm just saying. There's different. But you know, (laughs) in in the Bible, you and I both, you know, consider it to be the holy word of God. Right? And I'm not not ripping on Samson. No, I'm I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not accusing (laughs) you of that. Right? I'm just saying that's an instance of someone who was flawed multiple times. Right? And we see that. Um, But he was called for a specific fight. A specific fight to bring God's people against an opposition, who is the Philistines, and to fight pretty brutally. And now that's, a, that's I'm using that more metaphorically. Right, right, right. I, mean, I, I think get President it. Trump's going to take a donkey, you know, a jaw of a donkey. And for media it. matters, Charlie is not <laughs> calling for President Trump to slay a thousand Democratic no. National Committee staff. Right, I'm not, say, I'm not saying I'm not saying that at all. But you under, the, the, the analogy is that sometimes God calls impure, unusual people to go fight for righteous causes. So uh, let's let's talk about one more thing with regard to the anti-left thing. So 
again, anti-left, all for it. Leftist tears. We love them. I love but is it? But one thing that, that worries me about the, the anti-left attitude um, as opposed to the conservative attitude, and I think that you need both, right? Conservatism is anti-left because it's conservative, not just because anti-left is anti-left, is something that you've come up against, and that is sure. the gatekeeper problem. So there are a lot of people who consider themselves anti-left who also happen to believe atrociously awful things. Yeah, and, 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 and you and I have both denounced them publicly and at events and all that. Right. So well, where does the line, where, where is the line drawn between what is appropriate behavior in fighting the left and what is inappropriate behavior in, in fighting the left? Great question. That's where morals come in, right? That's where we have to say, we don't believe, uh, you don't believe this and I don't believe this, one race is better than the other. Like, I don't believe that America should be by any means... A, 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 any sort of exercise in a racial majoritarian experiment. That's not who we are. It never has been. I mean, the phrase e pluribus unum is part of the American trinity. E pluribus unum, in God we trust and liberty. And so here's where I make the argument in the MAGA doctrine. And is so you have conservative values incorporated anti-leftism and populism, right? But let's take it to a further extent, which is, we. and President Trump has denounced the hatred. He has denounced the vile, you know, um, insidious, nonsense that is out there. And he has, and he's, he's gotten more forceful and he's gotten more ahead of it as time has gone on. Because unfortunately, they're, they're a minority of a minority, but they're out there and they have real hatred for certain individuals. And I'm not going to say any names, but that, that's just how it is. And I go up on college campus sometimes, I get questions that are horrible about Jewish individuals, you know, and horrible, horrible things. And I denounce them and I fight back against it. However, that's where it comes into our moral position and our conservative position of the belief in the American Trinity. But if you take it to a further extent, right, if we're nothing but just conservatism on a chalkboard, right, and we're nothing but just always saying we're in a free trade with everyone always, well, what's the extent of that, right? So the, the, the inverse would be, what, what if we take the other too far and we, make, we, we allow the rise of China to be too much? And I can make the argument that H.W. Bush and Clinton, so on and so forth, allowed that other extreme to happen. And so that's where I think President Trump has balanced it. I really do. We have the healthy dose of anti-leftism, populism, and conservatism. However, when that hatred comes up and it rears its ugly head, we have a moral obligation as conservatives to kick out the demons in our own ranks. And it's something the left will never do. They never, ever exercise the demons in their own ranks. In fact, they embrace them. One of the areas where you've obviously come under a lot of criticism on campus is from this specific group that we're talking about. Uh, this has become yeah, a headline-worthy issue when they tried to do the same thing to Donald Trump Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle. Uh, and they, they've been approaching you on campus. And the specific criticisms, aside from the sort of just plain racism of it, seem to be that you're too socially liberal. So what is your what is your perspective on Well, look, I, I mean, I... I believe marriage is one man, one woman. I believe in biblical marriage. I always have. And I also have people that are gay on my staff, and I'm not afraid to share the stage with people that are gay. Other individuals think, and they have said this, that gay people do not have a position in the conservative movement. I believe that is wrong. I believe that Dave Rubin and Peter Thiel and Tammy Bruce have a place in the conservative movement. I absolutely do. And I think that I, I think it's so backwards that they would believe that we should somehow grow the influence of the conservative movement by the process of subtraction of people that are turned off by the left, turned off by woke culture of the left. Somehow they believe that the conservative movement should be closing its doors to people that all of a sudden might be, be interested in your podcast or your, your position or your speeches. I march at the March for Life. I am very, very pro-life against Planned Parenthood. I talk about it quite often. It's an unfair accusation against me. It just is. Um, but I'm also, I won't apologize for having, having people that are gay on my staff 
sharing the stage of people that are gay, that have served our country and that are veterans. It's not something I'm going to apologize for a second for. And it doesn't compromise my Christianity, my moral positions on marriage, or my conservative beliefs. Okay, the other critique they've been hitting you with is that you're supposedly too soft on immigration. So I want to give you a chance to uh, respond to their charge that you are some sort of open borders. Again, I appreciate you actually bringing it up because I can clear the air on it. It's nonsense. Um, I said something, let's just say I said a position that I re-clarified where I, I, I should have said it more stringently, but I believe in less legal and illegal immigration. I support Senator Tom Cotton's um, act where essentially he wants to limit the amount of green cards to 500,000 a year. I mean, I, I have been defending ICE facilities up against ICE protesters, building the wall, deporting illegal aliens, making English the official language of the United States. Again, it's an unfair accusation. And I, I will agree with the, um, with the fervency that I think immigration is one of the top issues in America. I really do. However, if your drive for that immigration policy is rooted in hatred of another group and position or in racial supremacy, that's wrong. If it's from a position that, well, our country's being taken advantage of and it's, and it's we can't afford or take a million green cards every single year, that's a, that's a conversation I can have and that's what I actually sympathize with and I agree with. And I think we should have less legal and illegal immigration. But again, the accusation is unfair through and through. Okay, so in one second, I want to ask you about the other side of the aisle. I'm going to talk about the left and Bernie Sanders. But first, let's talk about why you should protect your data on the internet. So you wouldn't like go home, open up your safe, open up your front door, and then just think to yourself that humanity is filled with wonderful people. So why would you unlock your internet activity? Did you know that your internet service provider knows every single website you visit, which is super creepy, and of course, They can then sell that information to tech giants. ExpressVPN puts a stop to all of this. It creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. ExpressVPN works on everything. Phones, laptops, routers. Everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected, even if they don't even have ExpressVPN. And the best part is, using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You install it on your computer. It runs in the background of your computer. And now you don't have to worry about it ever again. If you don't use a VPN and your data and browsing history are taken from you, That's sort of on you, considering how easy it is to get ExpressVPN. So just go do it. Be responsible. Take care of your own data. If you're like me and you believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself today by visiting expressvpn.com slash Ben. Use my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Ben, and you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Ben. Okay, so let's talk about the other movement that you've been dealing with on campus, and that, of course, is the Bernie Sanders movement. So young people particularly are resonating to Bernie Sanders. Uh, almost as a counter-reaction to Trump in some ways, but kind of separate and apart from. So Bernie is wildly popular on campus. To what do you attribute the vast bout of insanity happening on our college? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, it's very easy to be generous other people's money. It's very easy to want to spend other people's resources. And, and look, from a very basic position, if you've never been taught that our country's a gift or a blessing, why would you want to conserve that blessing? I mean, if you've been taught hatred of our country that we're racist, bigoted, homophobic, backwards, then why not have a revolution against it? And Bernie Sanders, he embodies the same college professor that's been screaming at them since they first got to college. He's a legitimate Marxist. He honeymooned in the Soviet Union. And your your critique of Bernie Sanders is one of the best in the entire movement. And you asked a very simple question. Do you believe private property is a right, Senator Sanders? And that's a question that any honest journalist should ask him. He's a legitimate property confiscator. That's what he is. He believes, he does not believe that individuals have a right given to them by God to own property. He does not believe that. He believed it state first, human being second. He's a Rousseauian Marxist is what he is. And so look, young students and young people, they some of them truly believe that garbage. They really do. Not all the Bernie Sanders people do. They actually think that he's on the side of freedom or liberty in some sort of distorted 
bizarre concoction. They think that he's actually the fighter and the crusader for liberty. And nothing could be further from the truth. So I always ask the question to Bernie Sanders supporters, um, do you trust the government? And almost always they say, no, no, the government's bought by lobbyists and corporations and by the war machine, you know, all this stuff. I say, why on earth would you want to make that government bigger? And they have no response, of course. But that's the whole kind of summation of how I think you approach Senator Sanders, Marxist, you know, Marxists that support Senator Sanders, which is his whole position, his whole worldview is getting more people, more bureaucrats and more power to the very government you say you distrust. It seems pretty obvious that President Trump would prefer Senator Sanders as the nominee of the Democratic Party against him. Uh, The the reason I say that is because he obviously has been sort of trying to, uh, via his Twitter account, stir up chaos inside the Democratic Party, which he's quite good at, uh, by targeting everybody except for Sanders and suggesting to Sanders supporters that they're going to be robbed of the nomination eventually by the Democratic upper echelon. Uh, It seems that, uh, number one, do you agree with that characterization that that that's what Trump wants? Maybe. I don't know. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't say it full-throated, though, because I've seen President Trump, you know, in in interviews and time I've spent with him, have, have a good amount of hesitancy by saying, oh, yeah, all in, let's run against Bernie. I think Bernie could beat Trump. I think it's really hard to run against free. And I think the media would go all out for him, especially the younger journalist, Marxist activist class. They'd be more excited than ever to try to paint him as the salvation that America needs. Bloomberg or Bernie, who would Hollywood go all in more for? I think Bernie, for sure. I think that I don't know how much currency that has in Wisconsin, but it can make some impact. Um, Probably from a philosophical choice, I would much rather run against Bernie because I think he embodies actually what the Democrat Party's trying to do. Um, But it terrifies me. It terrifies me because anyone could win, right? And I, you and I agree with this. Any major party nominee could could conceivably be the president of the United I States. I learned that the hard way in 2016 after I lost $10,000 betting against the president. So there you have it. Well, yeah. And so, and you, because you, you start from, you start from a baseline, basically 40 to 42%, right? I mean, it, that's just, that's just the way it is. Electoral college, you're not running for president in LA County. So it's not going to happen. Or you're not running for president in Manhattan. And so Bernie Sanders could become president of the United States. That should horrify everyone listening to this or watching this. Uh, He's a true committed Marxist. He does not love our country. He just doesn't. He is on a mission to radically redefine and deconstruct our country from within. You know the school of deconstructionism. It basically is the the whole school of thought is create cultural chaos everywhere and that will give rise to an authoritarian Marxist to allow them to create something that will eventually not work at all but give a lot of power to the ruling class to try to create some failed, com- you know, communist communal state. I mean, it, do- it does seem like Sanders should be the one that Trump is rooting for in the sense that President Trump is a wrecking ball man. And that, that, is, his, that is his specialty. Uh, I've always said about, about politics, the politics is the art of making it very difficult to vote for your opponent and making it very easy to vote for you. And President Trump may not That's be spectacular at the latter, but he is phenomenal at the former, making it very difficult for people to vote for his opponents. That is that man's specialty. Well, and I have to say, you know, in the Super Bowl interview with Sean Hannity, President Trump comes right out of the gate and says, why did he honeymoon in Russia? I was like, yes, he's already on that. I mean, that's, that's a great critique, though. I mean, why did he honeymoon in the Soviet Union? It would take like a traditional Republican, like months of workshopping and poll testing. Uh, President Trump just comes right at it. says, yeah, Bernie Sanders honeymooned in the Soviet Union. And, and I, I agree with you. I mean, he's one of the best attack dogs in American political history. I wouldn't want to run against him. No one would. I mean, he, he would be, he's relentless. He's a monster. And, and, and not only is he... In a good way. No, well, when it comes to beating people up, he is, he's incredible at it. He also has the advantage of every piece of dirt 
that could ever be thrown at somebody has been thrown at him. I've described him as a mud monster in the sense that no matter how much mud you throw on him, he just looks like mud. I mean, like he's already made of mud at this point. So nothing that you throw on him is actually going to make a difference. Whereas Bernie's never actually been vetted by the media, which is unbelievable. He's been a useless octogenarian communist for 60 years. I mean, he was 80 when he was 20. He wasn't just a useless communist when he was 20. He was an octogenarian when he was 20. And now he's running for president and nobody has asked him a simple question. Hey, the, the other night when, when Michael Bloomberg Finally, asked him a question about his lake house. And Bernie had never been asked a question That's about right. his lake house. I mean, it was perfectly obvious that no one had ever just asked him straight to his face about the fact that he's a millionaire with a lake house and nobody else on the stage had done it. And he didn't have an answer for it. And I just thought to myself, Donald Trump is going to drive to Bernie Sanders' lake house, pry up a floorboard and figuratively beat him to death with it. That's right. On a public stage. And you know what he'll do? Unbelievable. He'll say, this is not even that nice of a house. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's exactly what, what he's going to say. He'll, he'll say he said about Mount Vernon. He's no, certainly going to say about no, Vernon's like, crap lake house. He'll say like Champlain. he's like, wait a second. Fact. This is this is not <laughs> the view's not even that good. He's like, I would have built it better, cheaper, and quicker, and better on time. And, and by the way, by mocking it that way, it would get ten times more visibility. It'd be the front page of the New York Times. Oh, President President right. Trump says Bernie Sanders' third home is not well built. By doing that, <laughs> more people would actually know about his lake house. And 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 look, I, I have to say that Sanders. I think he's actually in a position he didn't think he would be in. I, I can be, I, he's more focused on his revolution and his movement than becoming president. I don't think eight, nine months ago, he thought he'd be in this position. It just so happens Elizabeth Warren is so unbelievably bad at politics, like really, really bad. I mean, she lies about everything, about her heritage, about her father being a janitor or something, you know, a working class, everything. And she's part of the ruling class professor, and she just seems like she's always scolding people. And it was kind of the default position of the angry Marxist in the Democrat Party. Like, yeah, I guess we still got Bernie. He's still screaming about it, right? You know, sure. And, he, and because of that, he's he has a great grassroots, you know, he's a great grassroots base. He's going to win. I think he's going to win states like California and Texas. I just do. Um, and he probably will be the nominee. And people say, well, you know, they're going to try to steal it from him. I, I think that's a harder bet. I think it's actually... More, it's more likely he's going to be the nominee than they try to steal it from him. That's my perspective. Yeah, I agree. I think that as long as he wins a plurality of the delegates, it's almost impossible to take it away from That's him. That's right. Because he's going to walk out of that convention and he'll just say to his people, listen, I'll campaign for the nominee, but they're all going to stay home. I mean, mm -hmm. they're all going to stay home. And, and Michael Bloomberg's bizarre bet that if they get to the, the convention and yeah. he has the second most delegates, that he's going to be able to walk in with his giant bag of cash, plop it on Tom Perez's desk and say, I'll spend $5 billion on this election if you just throw Bernie out. I can't see Tom Perez taking that deal because the the press is just too bad for him. Well, yeah, and again, if you look at the numbers, and this is very this is a flawed way to look at primaries. Like, oh yeah, this person drops out and all their votes is going to go somewhere else. It doesn't work that way. Right. It, it, it can work a little bit that way. The best the best fit though is Warren and Bernie. Like, if Warren drops out, they're not going to Michael Bloomberg anytime right. soon. Like, the, her whole shtick that ten percent that she has is billionaires are bad, Marxism, but a little bit lighter touch than Bernie Sanders. And her decay, if you will, and her decline will fuel the rise of Bernie Sanders. And I mean, maybe there might be a Bloomberg-Buttigieg alliance that could be formed, but they're not angry enough to be the nominee. I mean, they want Kathy Griffin, Colin Kaepernick-style anger. That's who they are. I mean, they want, tear it all down. Donald Trump is the worst president in American history. This country is horrible, and we're going to take it back. Like, okay, great. Get 80% of the votes in L.A. County and have fun losing Wisconsin. Do you think the president has a good shot of winning the popular vote this time? No. So last time, it, yeah. So that, that would be the question, right? I mean, and I admit it, as a Trump supporter, yeah. I think he might lose the popular vote worse this time than in 2016. And thank goodness for the Electoral College. We, and the Electoral College is brilliant. It's important. It's a safeguard of our republic. We're not a democracy. We are a republic. Huge difference. Um, and I don't think that the coastal elite cities 
um, dominated by Malibu and Manhattan should dictate our elections. In fact, I can make an argument you have to go to a more diverse pockets of the country to win the presidency under the electoral system. Uh, so I don't think he'll win the popular vote, nor should he try. So, so basically all resources into Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. Same Not only that, like all resources into five or six counties in those states. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about West Milwaukee. I think the black vote could have a huge impact. Uh, I really do. And especially if they nominate you know, Bloomberg or Buttigieg, which again, I think is unlikely. But I still think against Senator Bernie Sanders, I think that I think black Americans and Jared Kushner and his team deserve a lot of credit for this have delivered a lot of results for black America that otherwise would not have been delivered. Criminal justice reform, opportunity zones, uh, low sever black unemployment. Do I think he'll win 50%? That's probably unlikely, but 15 or 20% I think is conceivable. Okay, so let's look at the second term of the Trump administration. So what does that look like? Because we've seen basically no plans. I mean, he got he got the, the tax cuts done. Presumably he moves to make those permanent. Um, and he's done the judges and presumably there will be more there, there'll be more vacancies and he'll fill the vacancies. But we haven't really seen from President Trump what are his plans for a second term because on that Republican agenda, unfortunately, has become extraordinarily short, right? Because its spending cuts are very unpopular. Yeah. The president has basically pledged that there will be none. He's, he's pledged that for a long time, is that he's not going to cut Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, the, the budget that he proposed proposed some future cuts to futures to future increases. What what is the agenda really like? What's it, on the agenda? It's a phenomenal question. It really is because second terms can be second terms can be really tricky. Um, the second term of George W. Bush was a disaster. It just was. It was mismanaged. There was no clear vision. Um, and from what I for, here, here's what gives me confidence though is that the White House is getting to a place where it's working as as well as it ever has. And I could tell you that from from Jared Kushner to people that are back in the White House that are not spying and leaking on the president of the United States, where you have disloyal people that are writing, you know, writing books and trying to counter him. I, I don't like any of that. I think it's nonsense. And I think it's garbage. I think that you serve the president of the United States, who's a vessel of the American people. You're not there to try to leak or to try to get earn goodwill with journalists. So I have confidence that in the second term of this presidency, that you're going to have a better working functional White House than you did in the beginning stages of the first term. But you need some really big agenda items. And if I were to kind of my wish list, I would agree with you. Size and scope of government and government spending. We got to get back to the Tea Party movement of deficit hawks. I, I, we just have to. We have to have harsh government spending and we got to get this under control because you and I are both going to either experience hyperinflation or anemic economic growth or uncompetitiveness if we don't get our spending under control. And that's what originally got me fired up about Barack Obama was the amount of debt. And I know President Trump has submitted budgets that you know do have some spending cuts, um, but Congress is not taking them seriously at all. And I think Mick Mulvaney being in the White House is a positive thing because he is a deficit hawk and he is a debt hawk. The second thing is immigration. If we do not build the Southern Wall and start deporting foreign nationals that are in our country, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. I really believe that. And this whole idea of comprehensive immigration reform, that, that, that's a talking point, I think, of the left and the soft right, just to try to get amnesty for a bunch of people so they can vote for Democrats in the future. So I don't know how you're going to work with Congress on that, but that's going to be something that has to be addressed. I think the third issue is taking on the tech companies. I, that doesn't mean that has to be a huge amount of regulation. I don't know what it looks like, but there's, if I have to say the top, one of the top issues in the conservative base is censorship and is the tech companies just acting as if they're total authoritarians in our country. And I'm, I'm hesitant for government regulation. As a free market guy, I actually think regulation could help the very people that I'm critiquing more than not. It could actually be a shield for the monopolies. Um, but he has to do something about that in his second term. Okay, so looking forward beyond Trump, and I know that that's nearly impossible because Trump is not only the lodestar of, of sort of all politics right now, the, the gravitational center. He's he's the black hole of all media attention. Right? Everything not only revolves around it, but is sucked into it. And, and so it's hard to foresee a future in which President Trump either is not president or is not sort of the directing force in the Republican Party. But 
you're 26. Yeah. I mean, President Trump is how old? 74? Uh, so he, he's, he's getting up there. I mean, you, the man should live long and prosper. You sh- you'll be alive longer than President Trump, barring you being hit by a car or an early case of terminal cancer. So with, with that being the case, beyond 2024, what does the Republican Party look like? Because there are these really, I, I think, large internecine wars that are being glossed over and papered over by the fact that there is a Republican and president it, it, in the White House. Yeah, and it's going to it's going to surface sooner rather than later. And that's part of why I wrote the book is what is the doctrine? What does the future look like? You're starting to see it right now between common good conservatism and right-based conservatism. And I, I actually, I genuinely see both sides of the arguments. And I depends on the issue. I sympathize with one side over the other, uh, all depending on it. But that's going to be a huge, huge debate going into the future. But what is the, f- I think that one couple things that the Republican Party or the conservative movement can take away from President Trump, which is, Take the populace that you represent really, really seriously. Don't ignore issues that might be politically incorrect that are harming people's lives, like immigration or trade, ever again. And those are things I talk about in this book that he ran on, that the Republican Party was like, oh, yeah, we're just going to kind of get along on these issues. Now, President Trump ran on less immigrants, you know, stricter border control and renegotiated trade deals. I don't want the Republican Party to go back to be the party of the ruling class. I don't want a party of Mitt Romney. I don't. I don't want the party of Lake Champlain on Labor Day. Like that bothers me where it's just an elitist party, where it's just the same people circulating the same sort of elitist talking points. I want to be the party of the people that shower before work and shower after work. I want to be the party where labor unions think the Republican Party stands for them, too. And you can have disagreements about how labor unions raise the cost. And I think there's some validity to that. But totally disenfranchising labor in our country, I think, was a big mistake. And President Trump, I think, proved that. Um, I don't want to be the party of the Rockefeller, Romney, Bush, you know, kind of philosophy. Um, and I think those, those arguments are going to play itself out tremendously. And I think that where rights-based conservatism has really, really good points, which is you only got one gun, you make this point, right? Don't ever do anything with this gun you don't want someone in the left to do. Awesome point. Where common good conservatives make the point, which is we have a declining culture and country right now and people that are really suffering. Why are we not doing more to help them right here, right now? Both have validity. They're going to play itself out. And I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be pretty, pretty, pretty heated, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and to your point, President Trump being the anti-leftist president has kind of um, kept all of that at bay. But post-Trump, whatever that looks like, if he gets reelected January of 2021, you are going to have a jump ball, to use a basketball analogy, the likes of which the conservative movement has not seen since the time for choosing speech Ronald Reagan back that he gave at the convention. So I, I do want to ask you one final question, sure. Charlie, and that is what your plans are. Like, what do you plan to do over the next 15 or 20 years? Oh, since again, you're, you're 26 years old. But if you want to hear Charlie's final question, then you have to go over to dailywire.com. When you do, and when you go subscribe, then you will get the rest of our conversation over there. Now, be sure to go pick up your copy of the MAGA Doctrine because it has gold lettering on it and a picture of the president hugging the flag. So it is an exercise not only in brilliance, but subtlety. I mean, clearly. Charlie, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special is directed by Mike Joyner and produced by Mathis Glover. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producer, Katie Swinnerton. Post-production is supervised by Alex Zingaro. Editing is by Jim Nickel. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. Title graphics are by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. Did you know that mRNA vaccines are approved for use in pigs in the United States? 
Not to mention, 85% of the beef sold in your local grocery store is imported. In fact, over 5 billion pounds of meat was imported just last year. There's so much mystery surrounding our meat, which is why I'm so grateful for my Good Rancher subscription. I know that I don't have to worry about imported meat or unknown vaccines in the food that I feed my family. Good Ranchers is saying mRNO to mRNA by offering a free 10-pound Easter ham with any subscription. Unlike the pork from the grocery store, Good Ranchers ham is guaranteed 100% free from mRNA vaccines. This is a $119 value, absolutely free with code DAILYWIRE. Go to GoodRanchers.com and say mRNO to mRNA by subscribing today. You have a right to know exactly what's in your food, and Good Ranchers is dedicated to protecting that right and providing your family with the best meat in America, free from any unknown and potentially harmful additives. Go to GoodRanchers.com and subscribe to any of their boxes and use code DAILYWIRE at checkout. Every subscription will come with a free Heritage Ham, $25 off, and Good Ranchers lifetime quality commitment. That's GoodRanchers.com, code DAILYWIRE.